Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Congressman, you mentioned the wrongs of racism, and I just want to make the pitch here because Camille himself won't do it. You have an opportunity right now to have a diverse (laughs) ticket that is a Syrian, Palestinian, Jamaican-American ticket. It will go a long way towards righting those wrongs. Camille Foster mm-hmm. should be mm-hmm. on your ticket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a solid ticket. That sounds like a solid know, ticket. I- but if you listen to some of the old podcasts, you might be saddled with a few of Camille's old comments. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your very weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster and I am absolutely beside myself. I also do a number of things at Three Media, but I'm, I'm super excited. That this is a very good day. Um, and on this very good day, unsurprisingly, I'm joined by Matt Welch, the, the joy of my heart. He just inspires me to be better, to be a better human. Oh, I'm just grateful for you, Matt Welch, editor at large at Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, the bane of my existence. I mean, the, the man just so frustrating. Um, he does things at Vice News. Gentlemen, hello. Hi, it's good to be with you amongst the living Thank on this you. fine, fine day. Thank you. Yeah. It's nice to be back and not have um, a Zoom call that had, what was the last one we had? 200 and some odd people on it. Was that the final headcount? Yeah, I don't know what the peak was. It was a good number of people, though. It was a good crowd. Back when New York used to have live podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, like two and a half months ago, um, <laughs> I was at one of these things, and they were doing skits, and it's like sort of these half-funny New Yorker writers and reading like their short stories or their bon mots, and one of them was like, um, all the things that podcast hosts say before introducing their guests, <laughs> and, like how, what to do when you're the guest while they're doing their stupid chit-chat back and forth. So let's just keep that in mind as we do. Yeah. We extend this for another 15 Our guest minutes. In, in that time uh, has already dropped out of the race. It's just like, you know what? I can't do it anymore. This is really terrible. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. But I think we probably showed our hand there of who our, our fantastic guest is. We've been dying to have on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll get right to it. Our very remarkable guest, the very first libertarian congressman in the United States of America from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the third district. She's been representing faithfully and dutifully uh, Mr. Justin Amash, candidate for the presidency of the United States of America. Uh, Congressman, thank you for joining us. Hey, Camille, thanks for having me on. Thanks, all you guys. Donning the hoodie today. Uh, yeah. Looking uh, very fresh. <laughs> this is the is this the second congressman? It's basically Massey and Amash is who we've had. Not playing the type or anything like that. No, uh, I think that <laughs> might be true. <laughs> But Congressman, thank you for making some time to join us. You've been making the rounds, doing a lot of media. Uh, I've seen you on CNN and every place else. I appreciate you setting aside a little time to chat with us today. It's It's been busy, but it's part of the job. Yeah. This this will obviously be your most intense, intense interview. And I, I just want to start mm-hmm. from the beginning and Siri. ask you, why are you running for office? Why do you hate America and want to destroy this country? It, <laughs> it seems to be like the, the way most of these conversations begin. And I just want to say it from the outset, we're not going to begin there because I think it's a stupid question. I think it's absolutely asinine. You can run for whatever office you like. And if your candidate is insufficiently uh, engaging and wonderful and people decide to vote for someone else, they're not a spoiler. They're a candidate. This is how it works. It's part of the process. Shut up. Now, Congressman, you don't have to agree with that. And you don't have to say anything if you don't want to, because you've answered this question 100,000 times. But I just wanted to put it out there because I don't really want to go there again. Yeah, well... You guys know about me and and you know why I'm running, which is we need someone different than these two other candidates. We need someone who's going to respect the Constitution and restore our system of government to the way it's supposed to work so that people have some representation in Washington. And right now they don't have any representation. And I think when you look at these other two candidates in the general election, at least I still have to earn the the Libertarian Party nomination. I don't want to take any of that for granted because I'm going to have to work hard and, and earn the trust of the Libertarians. but. When we get to the general election, if I'm fortunate enough to get there, then you'll see a big contrast between the candidates. And you have two candidates who represent the old way of doing things, who want big government, who want to control your lives. And I'm the candidate who's going to try to return power to the people, protect your rights and respect the people. Can we start briefly by just chatting about where you are in this process now? You've announced that you have an exploratory committee, I guess, um, who's looking at the race with you whatever that means. 
you're also engaged with the LP at this point. How does the process work in terms of you becoming the nominee for the LP? There will be a convention coming up and they're working through how to set up the convention because they were going to have an in-person convention. And now right. of the coronavirus, it's not going to be in-person likely if it's any time in the near future. A little more complicated. Yeah. The question is whether it will be an online convention or whether they'll delay it and have an in-person convention or something else. So they're working through all that. For my part, what's important is that you have a fair process that respects the delegates and is fair to the candidates. I want every candidate to feel that they got a fair shot, including our campaign. We all want to be treated fairly under this process. And that's, that's what's important, that nobody feels like this was some kind of uh, setup one way or the other, either uh, for my candidacy or against my candidacy. So, and, the, and every other candidate feels the same way about their own campaign. So let's just make sure it's a fair process. And I've got to go out and, and talk to the delegates and uh, earn their respect and trust. To be clear, they've agreed to agree in about 10 days about where to maybe hold a convention sometime before July 15th. Wow. So if it's in, if it, if it's in Grand Rapids, that's a, that this thing is cooked. <laughs> I think it's important that we not postpone it too late because if you postpone it too long, it makes the calendar more challenging. And we want to make sure we get on the ballot in all these states too. So there, there are a lot of aspects involved to this. A campaign has to get up and running and it'd be better if it doesn't go all the way to July or something like that. Congressman, can I uh, back, back up just a, a small bit? Because we do have a lot of listeners who know of you, don't know the backstory as such, and would maybe, because we have a broad listener base of people that maybe say, oh, this is a libertarian guy. This is a libertarian, um, hopefully the libertarian uh, party candidate. But you weren't, of course, always a libertarian. You were independent and prior to that, a Republican. Can you give us a little kind of sketch of the kind of arc of your career as a Republican and, and why and how you left the Republican Party, which I think a lot of people who don't really know you um, would, you know, be interested in, in, in finding out? Well, I've always been a small L libertarian, and I probably think of myself as more on the classical liberal side of things. For those who are maybe a little bit wonky about it, I'm more of an F.A. Hayek guy than anything else. And there are other parts of the libertarian polity that you know, are in different parts of uh, the spectrum and, and think different things about libertarianism. But that's where, that's where I am. So I've been kind of anti-authoritarian since I was a kid and didn't really describe myself as a libertarian for a lot of my life. When I got older, I started to really realize where I fit in the political world, and, and I spent some time reading and studying uh, libertarian thought. So Hayek is a guy who really came up first for me. When I um, really was immersed in a lot of this, I was looking at the state government and seeing a total disaster, a total mess brought on by Republicans and Democrats. And I thought at that time, it would be good to take a crack at it, to run for office as a Republican at that time, I didn't really think about any parties other than the Republicans and Democrats. You know, those were the ones that were on my radar uh, as a 20-something year old. And I decided to run as a Republican and thought that I could maybe cast the Republican Party in more of a libertarian uh, image where, um, you know, they weren't that far off on a lot of the things they talked about. In practice, they weren't doing any of it, but at least they were talking about it. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe I can bring people along got into the Republican Party. It was uh, obviously well-received by my constituents. They elected me to Congress after one term in the state house. So it worked. It was successful and people liked what I was talking about. And when I got to Congress at first, I thought, um, well, this is a disaster again, just like the state house, but we can make some headway. And the first few years, I thought we were making uh, headway. I thought we were improving the political system. I thought we were improving the, the Republican Party and moving it in a more liberty-oriented direction and a more uh, representative direction than, than where it had been. But then I would say about, I don't know, 2014, 2015, things started to take a really bad turn in the party. You had a few people at the top, uh, started with Boehner, of course, who really started to lock down on the legislative process and tried to wrestle control away from the members who are interested in some of this change, who are interested in making it a more uh, liberty-oriented party or a more representative party. And then uh, you saw a, a gradual um, creeping of nationalism into the party's messaging. That happened before Donald Trump. I'd start to see it in town halls. 
And so I, I could sort of see Donald Trump coming ahead of time before he was even a candidate. You could see this starting to um, grow at town halls where you'd hear people on the left and the right talking in a, in a more nationalistic way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely heard that. And I was still doing very um, well in my district. I'd win these elections with good margins. But I started to more and more hear things about nationalism and protectionism and things that were really counter to the Republican Party of, say, the 80s and 90s, which had moved in more of a a Reagan direction, if you will, you know, not necessarily quite libertarian, but uh, a little more free market and and classical liberal in, in many ways. So uh, yeah, I saw it coming. And, and now I don't even really recognize the party. It's very different from the party I was a part of in uh, around 2010, let's say. It's a very different party now. Just all, along these same lines, I think a lot of people, when they hear your story or encounter it, the sensibility is that you somehow abandoned the president and abandoned the party. I was rereading the editorial you wrote around the time that you left the Republican Party. It seemed very obvious that your concern wasn't merely what was happening in the Republican Party, but some sort of broader change that you were seeing uh, with respect to the role of partisanship in the country. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Both parties have their own sets of problems, and you're not seeing the Democratic Party act in any representative way either. What I'd like to see is a government where you take all these ideas and libertarians can come into uh, the government, conservatives can come in, progressives can come in, and we can all debate these ideas in front of the American people and let them make decisions based on what happens in our debates and our discussions and judge us on the outcomes we produce. Instead, what really happens in both parties is a few people at the top control everything. Speaker Pelosi controls the entire legislative process right now. Paul Ryan controlled the entire legislative process. And I can't speak for the Senate. Presumably, the Senate operates in a very similar way with a, a very top-down structure. But speaking for, for the House side of it, it's uh, really stifling. And you don't have any discussion anymore of policy. People don't even bother reading the bills because why should they? What's the point of reading a bill from their perspective if you're not going to have any say in it? All the, all the leadership wants is your vote, yes or no. They don't care whether the details aren't right. They're not interested in your amendments or your thoughts on it. Paul Ryan shut down the legislative process so badly that for the first time in our country's history, we had a whole Congress where there wasn't a single amendment that could be brought to the floor without being pre-approved by the Speaker of the House. The history of our government is one where the House is supposed to be a deliberative body and you bring your ideas to the floor. And if you want to present something, especially an amendment on an appropriations bill, you bring it to the floor and you offer that amendment and nobody can stop you. As long as it's germane to the bill, nobody can stop you. You have a vote on it and you win or you lose. Paul Ryan said, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. From now on, you want any amendments, I will decide whether you get that amendment. And you can imagine what kind of amendments get to the floor if the speaker gets to decide. Only amendments that don't really do anything or amendments that he's pretty confident are going to fail. So if your amendment does something and might pass, it's, it's excluded. You can't have it. He was the first Speaker of the House to do that. Now Nancy Pelosi is the second Speaker of the House. So two in a row right now, we went a couple hundred years, more than a 200 years, where we had a more open process. And it's gotten worse since, say, about Gingrich's time. But we've gotten to the point where it's totally closed down now. And what this does is it creates a lot of tension in society. because. My constituents, just like other people's constituents, are saying things like, hey, can you offer this amendment? Can you offer this idea? And we're basically not able to offer anything or do anything. The committee process is totally shut down, too. The the speaker decides what goes to the committees. When you have all of this tension and all of this uh, breakdown in the system, you get a, a huge level of polarization because now the members of Congress who can't debate policy anymore, what do they do? They debate personalities. And that's how you end up with something like Donald Trump, because you've created an environment that is perfect for a candidate like Donald Trump to come in and tell the people, drain the swamp, make America great again, look at how they're not doing anything. So he's, he's capitalizing on this broken system that Congress has created. And what I want to do as a president is go in and force Congress to represent the people. And this is, this is what makes my candidacy very different 
from Donald Trump or Joe Biden. We've seen how Donald Trump works. Joe Biden is going to operate in the same status quo way as every other president we've had in the past few decades. It's not going to change. We have to open up the process. And when Speaker Pelosi or any speaker comes to my office and says, hey, I want to go negotiate with you on this legislation, I'll say, have you negotiated with the legislature? You should negotiate with them first. Bring the legislation to Congress, run it through Congress, allow the committees to work, allow the floor to work, and then you bring me what you've got after everything's worked. Then I'll tell you if I've got an opinion on it, I can sign the bill or I can veto it. But I don't want to take power away from the people. So I'm promising to be a president who will reduce my power. And I think that's something that we really need because if the president can check his own power, then we can get Congress back doing its own job and we can help make the American people more satisfied that they're represented. You uh, talked about uh, a variety of House speakers. You were as instrumental as anyone else in dethroning, defrocking uh, John Boehner as House Speaker. So it sounds like because of your good work, there's been no amendments ever introduced again on the floor of Congress. Congratulations. But my question is more about the vehicle by which you did that, which is the House Freedom Caucus, which you co-founded. We're definitely one of the intellectual architects of it, along with noted limited government enthusiasts, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows uh, and and other people. Um, After the after Donald Trump became president, he picked fights with you lot. It was just I don't know how many 30 odd of you people, but you were stubborn kind of uh, 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 about a variety of issues, mostly spending and some other things, too, um, uh, about Obamacare repeal, replace, whatever the status of that was in early 2017, which was a big mix. Um, And talk a little bit because you left the House Freedom Caucus, I think, even before you left the Republican Party. Um, How did this organ that you helped start and create along a lot of these principles that you talk about go so quickly uh, from being this thing, which is stubborn independence, hewed towards principle, including reigning in executive power, <laughs> laughing, um, uh, to being the 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 place where the the talent pool for the attack dogs to defend Donald Trump against congressional investigations into him have been. What happened? Name names. <laughs> uh, well, I'll try to name some names, but what happened was the House Freedom Caucus was designed to address the things I talked about earlier. It was designed to open up the process. That's why it existed. People think it started as a conservative group. It, it, it didn't start as a conservative group. And I know because I was instrumental in trying to steer it in the right direction right from the get-go. There's a reason conservative is not in the name of the, of the group. There's a reason that when you look at the uh, mission statement of the group, it doesn't say anything about conservatism because that wasn't the point. The point was to open up the process so that everyone could participate so that everyone in America could feel represented. And that includes progressives and conservatives and libertarians and and anyone else who wants to participate in the process. So it was designed to open things up. And people forget that Donald Trump took aim at it early on. As you mentioned, Donald Trump was a person who said that we must defeat the House Freedom Caucus. He declared that on Twitter, that the House Freedom Caucus had to be defeated. But what ended up happening, I think sometime into the first year of his presidency or so, or maybe first or second year, is he realized that this was a bad strategy to make enemies of the House Freedom Caucus and that he needed to start picking off the members. So he started uh, elevating them to executive positions. He started to play nice with some of the members. And I think what happens is people get Uh, enamored with someone who pays attention to them, especially if that person is the president of the United (laughs) States. So if the president is constantly flirting with you and you're one of the House Freedom Caucus members, uh, it's easy to get taken by it. You know, he calls you up and he says, hey, you want to go golfing? Hey, you want to go for dinner? You're not going to turn the president down. So you have House Freedom Caucus members who start doing that stuff. And once you get to spend time with someone, even if it's a person who's been a jerk in so many ways publicly or has called for the defeat of your group or whatever he might have done, it's easy to get taken by it and say things like, well, you know, he's not so bad. Uh, Maybe I can work with this guy. Maybe we can change him. Maybe if I stay close to him, I can get him on the right track. And I'd start to hear this from my colleagues. They'd say, oh, well, you know, Justin, we don't agree with him, but we can work with this guy and we can change him. But what ends up happening 
is not that they change Donald Trump, but that Donald Trump changes them. And that's what they're not seeing. Donald Trump changed them. They didn't change Donald Trump. He's the same person he was before, and they are different now. They no longer care about things like fiscal restraint. And, oh, sure, you have a vote and some of them will vote against it, especially some of the ones who are, you know, the the true believers in that stuff. But in terms of actually pressing the president or pressing Republican leadership, they've totally forgotten about that. They're not interested in the fight anymore. They don't want to have that fight on any of the principles that they used to talk about, like opening up the process or making sure that our government is restrained properly by the Constitution. You know, now they're fully on board and the superficial went to the real when you started to get House Freedom Caucus members serving as the chief of staff. But then again, what power do they have as chiefs of staff? And what influence have they had? I, I haven't seen it. It's, it's run the same way, whether you had a House Freedom Caucus member there or, or not. I always appreciate the phrase, and I mean this, um, when someone says true believer, because it implies that everybody else doesn't believe it. And that that has become apparent to me over the years. I remember when I was at Reason and I first interviewed Paul Ryan and Paul Ryan gave me the absolute, you know, the the Randian stuff. He was going through the whole thing. And it was, you know, maybe a a year, a couple of years later that I did a double take and said, you know, who is this guy? And this seems to be pretty consistent. I mean, I, I, I rarely see somebody who doesn't fall victim to this. And I guess the question is, is that when you see people who were so serious about this stuff that they decided to cleave themselves off and say, we are the House Freedom Caucus, and we're not talking about conservatism, we're talking about freedom. And all of those people, not all of them, but a lot of them are co-opted. And I often mention people on this uh, when we're talking about it on the show, I always talk about Stephen Moore and Larry Kudlow and these people who are free traders. And I mean, not only are they not free traders or they're tempering it a little bit in trying to influence. I mean, that's always the thing. I'm going to work with this hideous um, administration because I'm going to try to, you know, have an effect on it. But these are people that are coming out and saying the opposite of what they've said for 30 years. I mean, this is obviously you see a lot of this um, from your colleagues. I don't. Why will it not happen to you? Because it happens to everyone. I mean, it, it, there's so many people, I've, yeah. you know, everybody who says they're going to do it gets there and they get defeated by Washington. The, the, you know, they're overwhelmed by the swamp, to use the silly language of the president. But can you avoid that? Because there's a lot of deal making that has to go to go into to the position. Um, and, you know, what you saw, you being cut out of the process. You start making that process. And then you, you say you want to devolve power from the pre- presidency. Can you do that without having Washington take advantage of you? Yeah, I can. And I've proven that by breaking from the Republican Party multiple times on a whole host of issues. I know people focus on the Mueller report, but really I've broken from the Republican Party time and again on issues where I thought they were overreaching, where they were pushing for constitutional violations or not standing up for their principles. I think at the end of the day, what makes me tick is quite different from what makes some of my colleagues tick, even in the House Freedom Caucus. And I have close friendships with many of them. So I'm not trying to uh, suggest they're bad people or anything like that, but people get into politics for different reasons. And for me, it's important to stay true to my principles. I really believe in what I'm fighting for. And I always made a commitment to myself that I didn't want to be in politics if I couldn't stand up for what I believe in. What is politics without principles? There's no point of politics without principles, in my opinion. Like, what, why even get involved? What, what's the point of running for office and then fighting for things you don't believe in? It doesn't make any sense. You can enrich yourself. You can get a cushy job afterwards. Yeah. So you make a couple million dollars a year, that sort of thing. So cynical, Camille. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't want the job <laughs> just for the job. And, and a, lot of my, yeah, a lot of my colleagues do just want the job, I think. I think at the end of the day, they like being called congressmen and showing up at the meeting and having everyone applaud for them. I, what I want is to stand up for the principles I talk about. And when I go home at the end of the day, feeling good about myself and about the fact that I did what was right and I stood up for my beliefs and the people have the right at home to vote for who they want. We're not elected to uh, have a you know, direct democracy where we just poll our constituents and, and then we vote according to the poll. We express what our principles are, and I tell my constituents what my principles are, and then they get to vote. 
And if they like what I stand for on principles, then they vote for me to use my judgment. And so I believe standing up for those principles and standing up for that judgment is really important. And I don't want the job if I can't do that. That, that to me is the essence. And so that makes me quite different from a lot of my colleagues because at, at the end of the day, what they want to have is the Republican leader come and pat them on the back and say, hey, you did a good job today. Let's go get a dinner. I want to introduce you to some of my lobbyist friends. I want to introduce you to, to this fundraiser over here. And getting the text messages from the leadership or from the president saying, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing. I know that that was a tough vote, you know, voting against your principles, but you're really helping the team. They like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if you're doing that, though, you're not helping anyone. You, you know, helping the Republican Party achieve some kind of short term win doesn't help the American people. What helps the American people is actually standing up for what you believe in and making sure that our system of government works. So what you're saying is that the Hollywood vision, the negative Hollywood vision of what Washington, D.C. is, you know, lobbyists, you know, golfing, donors, backslapping is true. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that is basically the way it works. And I think the thing that people get wrong is that it's not direct lobbyist influence on individual legislators. It's indirect influence through the leadership. I think that's where people get it wrong. They, there's an assumption that the lobbyists are going to each individual house office and picking off the, the legislators one at a time, but that's not what's happening. They're going to the Republican or Democratic leadership and getting them to do their bidding and getting the members to go with, with the leadership team. With, with respect to the program that you articulated when you were kind of making your case uh, for the American people and you talked about you know them having a government that's truly responsive to them and, and you explicitly devolving some of the, the power that's accrued to that executive, it's interesting to have a conversation about that. One, I, I fully endorse the program um, and I fully endorse you. Not that you, you need my endorsement, but you have it. He's, but, fishing, um, he's fishing for the Veep. He wants yeah, to be the your I, vice I, president. I I'm it. just telling you, I'm not, that's what he wants. Yeah, that's what the people want. But I, I, can't, I can't speak to that. That'll be a, that'll be a call after this. <laughs> um, but but in, a, yeah. in a time of COVID, it, it seems to me that there are a lot of Americans who almost certainly want a super empowered executive branch. They look to the government and they have an expectation that the government will be big enough and strong enough to protect them because many imagine that it perhaps is not, and that the president um, in particular will somehow articulate a vision to rescue them from their current circumstance. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of legislative action related to COVID, some pretty extraordinary numbers in terms of the amount of dollars that have been tossed at this. But it's likely that the whole of the presidential election might turn on this very issue. The quality of the response um, the quality of the of the of the aid that's being rendered to Americans and the sense that Americans have that, you know, this the battle against the virus and perhaps the subsequent battle against the the perhaps economic depression that we might be contending with is being entrusted to the right hands. How can people be confident that your hands are the right hands um, and that your program is consistent with a really good outcome here? And I suppose along the way, you'll probably address how you see things playing out right now. Well, this big government response hasn't worked. You know, there are people who have called for the president to have even more power, but imagine if he had even more power. I think you'd have a worse outcome. At least we have uh, the fact that these 50 states can make their own decisions on a lot of things that helps protect the rights of the people while also balancing the particular needs in the community. You know, not every state has the same issues with respect to COVID, and they need to address it differently. People talk about, well, the risk is the same every single place. It's not the same every single place. And Mm -hmm. the the doctors and epidemiologists will tell you it's not the same. Otherwise, when we're talking about opening things up, as as we often use that phrase, why would they be saying some places have to open up at different rates? They're admitting that it's not the same everywhere. They, They acknowledge it. And what I would say is, you do need a federal government that is available to provide some kind of coordination between states when you have uh, something that is international like this, right? You have a virus that's come across borders and it can affect the whole country. You do need some federal coordination involved, but the federal government doesn't need to direct every decision. You can leave a lot of the decision-making to the individual states and individual communities. I would say 
federal government leaves it to the states. States can then make decisions about how to how to divide things up among various counties and and cities, perhaps. But if you have the federal government in charge of everything, you're actually making a big mistake in terms of addressing things quickly. Because now, if one part of the whole system makes a mistake, the federal government in charge of everything, the whole system is broken. The whole system collapses. Mm-hmm. And you don't want that. It, it makes the system very vulnerable. It makes it fragile. It's, it's not a good way to run a government. So look at this um, coronavirus relief package as an example. Here's a package which shows you how uh, adept the federal government is at things. They put this convoluted package together that puts all sorts of barriers in the way. When if you wanted a federal solution and you wanted to have it happen quick, just get money to the people quickly. So if the federal government's going to be involved, it should be as simple as possible and as quick as possible. And otherwise, it should really try to get out of the way as much as possible while coordinating things, but letting people on the ground make decisions. Because the federal government doesn't have all the knowledge that's needed to resolve the issue. You don't have a bunch of people at the White House sitting in a room who can figure out what's going on in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It, it, it doesn't work that way. People in Grand Rapids, Michigan need to make that decision. And so I think the federal government has overreached in so many ways and at the same time failed the people in so many ways with its overreach, with this massive $3 trillion package that doesn't even benefit the people and mostly benefits large corporations. How does that happen? How does it happen that a, that a policy like this comes out of the pandemic? Especially, you know, Democrats are, are not supposed to favor big corporations, but all of these rescue packages nearly always seem to be calibrated in this particular way. You've seen the way the sausage gets made. Why, yeah. why is that happening? There's, there's one simple reason, which is that if you get relief directly to the people, you don't get that much political capital out of it. In other words, the two parties could get together and say, hey, let's get the relief to the people right away. Let's just start sending out checks. You know, we'll send out a $2,000 check. It'll be fast and simple and easy. But guess what happens when you do that? You make a lot of people, you make millions of Americans happy, but you don't get much political capital out of it. You still end up with several industries that come back to you and say, hey, what about us? We want something special. What about uh, farmers? What about, uh, you know, truck drivers? What about labor unions? What about... Everyone wants something else. So what they try to do is they put together the most convoluted package that gives a little bit of something to a bunch of discrete constituencies. And then all those people can say and and tell to their own membership, oh, look what a great job our congressman did. He got us this thing. And I see this right now with my colleagues. I see a lot of them going around and saying, hey, I did so much for the particular industry X. I I did this thing for them. And they're bragging about it as something that was stuffed into the bill. But at the same time that they're, they're bragging about all this stuff, millions of people are not having their needs addressed. They're on unemployment, but they're not getting their benefits. Or they, even, they can't even get onto the un- unemployment system. And they're going into food banks when they were, were doing okay before, but now they can't get a job because they've been told to, to stay home. So the the... The Congress has not addressed these concerns, and they've made it more convoluted. And that's because this is the system they're used to. This is the one that works for them. They want to be able to go to constituencies and say, I did this for your particular constituency, rather than say, I helped all the American people in one fell swoop. The initial uh, bailout, uh, how I can't even keep track, was a $2.5 trillion out of the gate, and the half a trillion for the PPP. Uh, you know, to support small businesses, supposedly <laughs> that's some, some small <laughs> yeah, businesses right. like Potbelly and, uh, and, but you know, 75% of that, the is, Los Angeles Lakers, the Lakers company. is a very, very small team um, as these things go um, on both of those. You voted present. You didn't vote against. No, no, that's, that's not true. The, on the 2 trillion plus package, I voted. No, we didn't have a, we didn't have a recorded vote, but I recorded my vote as no. You recorded your vote as no. Okay, so and let's take the second uh, one, then the, the most recent, the PPP. Um, you know, Tom Massey, I guess four other Republicans and AOC, and AOC's objection was if there wasn't more money in there. Uh, explain why you voted present and not no. Yeah, so 
the bill doubles down on the first package, the one I opposed. I voted no on that first package. At least I submitted my vote to the record. They, they didn't take a recorded vote, so I had to specially submit my no vote to the record. But the second bill doubles down on that system. In other words, it doesn't address all of the problems in that convoluted package, including with the PPP program. They didn't fix the program. The program mm-hmm. can work for a lot of businesses. And, and even in this broken stage uh, or state, it does work for some businesses, but it doesn't work for a great number of businesses. And they didn't really fix the program. So here's a bill that doubles down on that messed up convoluted bill, the, the $2.2 trillion bill with this new bill. But at the same time, I'm a big rule of law guy. And when I see uh, this PPP program where many of the more connected businesses got benefits through the program, even if they aren't uh, well-crafted and even if the bill is not very well-designed, they still were able to go and get a loan. When I see all of these businesses that got in there and got it done, and they're the ones who probably don't need it as much as many of the ones who are left out, then that causes me concern. And so I think it would be wrong to also double down on this idea that we're going to design the system to benefit those who need uh, less help and the ones who need more help, we're going to leave them out. So it it doubles down on a bad uh, piece of legislation, the previous package, and it doubles down on a rule of law violation. And these cut in opposite directions. So I voted present because you have a good reason to vote no and a good reason to vote yes on the bill. And uh, to me, the rule of law thing is important. So I, I voted president. I didn't want to send the message to the businesses that were left out that you don't deserve to be treated the same way as the businesses that got in. I think that's a bad mm-hmm. message to send. And, um, and that's why I voted president on it. Camille was talking about the context of coronavirus right now uh, to be making a limited government pitch to people or a, a government uh, executive branch devolution pitch. The last two years haven't been very friendly to people who spend a lot of time talking about constitutionalism, uh, fiscal restraint, and whatnot. I mean, you could just march right through it. Your friend, Mark Sanford, gets bounced out of a primary election um, as an incumbent in South Carolina in 2018. Uh, Gary Johnson, who runs for um, who ran for president in 2016, runs as a, as a Senate candidate in New Mexico only gets 15%. He's running against an absolute nobody Republican who doubles him up there. Um, you have uh, Jeff Flake, uh, you know, he retires rather than face the voters who were ready to absolutely kick him to the curb in Arizona. Um, Bill Weld tries to run against Donald Trump, gets squashed like a bug. Sanford thinks about it for a half a second, gets squashed like a bug and retreats. Like what makes your story or your moment any different than all of the people who in different uh, areas, different parties, different moments over the last two years have made at least somewhat overlapping cases to people electorally. Why are you so stubborn, Congressman? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I have a unique uh, combination of uh, skills. I can get out there and get this message out in a way that is maybe unique. uh, I've been good at social media. I uh, have, you know, ease of access to a lot of the young people out there, I think, who can get this message out. And I I do think it's important that you have a constituency that can get the message out for you. And I have a lot of experience in Congress with the problem I'm talking about. I I understand what ails our system, and I'm talking about it in a way that is different than the generic, hey, we just need more liberty and we need um, someone who's going to respect the Constitution. People need to understand when you talk about liberty and the Constitution, you need to un- they need to understand why those things are important to them. They need to understand how the Constitution is connected to our overall system and how that's connected to people's rights. So it all goes hand in hand. And I think I'm uniquely positioned to really talk about this message with the American people because I understand the problem and I've been talking about it for a long time. And it's not going to be a simple message like like we've had before of, oh, the government is just spending too much money or the government is doing too much. We have to, ex- we have to assess the problem. We have to explain to people at home why this is happening. Why is the government spending too much money? Why is the government not following the constitution? 
Why is the government not protecting our rights? They need to understand the why if you want to resolve this problem and make some headway in, in the political world. You, you can't just say these are problems. You need to tell people why that is. Can I build something on Matt, what Matt just said? I mean, very good points that he made about, you know, the, all these people that would be in your sort of ideological orbit that got squashed like bugs. Um, you're doing this. Obviously, you retreated from the party that you were previously um, a member of. But obviously, you know, I mentioned something before we started recording about somebody who's a friend of yours who said, you know, I, I, I love Justin. I'm a friend of his. But he said it to me in kind of a conspiratorial way in the halls of Congress that, like, don't <laughs> want to say it too loud. But, you know, he's great and we, we really appreciate him. What is it like when you're actually, you know, and as, as Camille said, we don't want to get into this sort of boring, tedious question about, oh, you're a spoiler, et cetera. But I do kind of I am interested in what sort of pressure people within the party are putting on you, um, because the, all those people that were squashed like bugs, have some of them anyway, have talked uh, talk quite openly about how the party apparatus kind of came for them in some way. Yeah. And, and, and for you, obviously, those are former colleagues, people who know you. Um, and a lot of a lot of whom have were ideological comrades who decided to defect and, and go to the other side. What is that interaction like with people? Is there a lot of pressure to say, hey, stop it. It's not good for anyone. And this is only going to hurt you. Yeah, th There was early on. For example, when I left the House Freedom Caucus, um, that was uh, a big deal. And even before that, when I said the president had committed, com, uh, committed impeachable conduct, that was a big deal to a lot of people uh, within the House Freedom Caucus and within the Republican Party. And they did come pretty hard at me to try to get me to apologize or change my ways or say that I didn't really mean it or whatever. It was, <laughs> it was kind of like a hostage situation in, in some ways, you know. You gotta, you gotta, you have to recant. We're gonna put you on tape. We're, we're gonna have you <laughs> hold today's new, newspaper, <laughs> right? So there was a lot of pressure like that early on. When I became an independent, that all went away because now my colleagues on the Republican side, at least, were saying to themselves, "Well, he's not one of us anymore, so we don't have to pressure him in the same way." What when I go around, and you mentioned uh, one of my colleagues. I still get this from colleagues, a lot of colleagues who respect me on the principles and uh, respect what I'm doing, but aren't willing to say it publicly. They're, they're out there willing to defend the president in some ways, but in many ways, they're staying kind of quiet and trying to just ride it out and hoping that it all ends at some point. When, you, when I look at former colleagues, I've had a lot of former colleagues, people who used to be in the party, I get... Uh, messages from them all the time thanking me for what I'm doing. And a lot of unlikely people, people who would have been, you know, fighting me left and right in the old days coming out and saying, hey, thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. You're standing up for truth and principles. Can I quote Matt and Welch those... and say name names, Congressman? <laughs> I'm not going to get into names because I, I want to respect, <laughs> I mean, I respect the parties, especially a lot of them are private. They're private citizens. Bill, yeah. Bill Crystal really loved you about three months ago. That's uh, that was that was. So fun there to are watch. those people who loved yeah. me before, and now they don't. You know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the never Trumpers have had very unkind things to say about you recently. To get in that topic just very briefly, they are not the largest group of uh, Republicans. Let me put it this way: like, <laughs> there are lots of people in the Republican Party who still do not like Donald Trump. Now, if you poll them on it and you say, do you approve of Donald Trump or don't approve of Donald Trump? They will still say they approve of him because a lot of people, when they get those polls, they're thinking about Donald Trump versus Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump versus uh, Joe Biden or someone else. So they're saying, yeah, well, compared to those people, yeah, I definitely approve of him. But if you really press them on it, I know Republicans, I've spent a lot of time with Republicans. I've served as a Republican in Congress. There are a lot of them who do not like Donald Trump. and with my entry into this race, I provide them an alternative, someone who they would consider voting for. Because for a lot of them, their first choice might be Justin Amash, but their second choice is not Joe Biden. It's Donald Trump still. They don't like him, but they're still voting for him. And I think mm. that's what a lot of Democrats are not understanding. You know, I've gotten some pushback from Democrats in the past a few days. People think it's never Trump Republicans. 
there are actually very few never Trump Republicans who have pushed back because there are very few never Trump Republicans like that. There just aren't that many people out there relative to other population groups who have a first choice of uh, maybe Justin Amash, let's say, and a second choice of Joe Biden and a third choice of Donald Trump. That That's not a big subset. What is a pretty big group is first choice Justin Amash, second choice Donald Trump, third choice Joe Biden. That's a much larger group. And for some reason, people are all uh, up in arms now on uh, the left because they're listening to some of these prominent Republican figures who no longer support the Republican Party and they support Joe Biden. And they think that's what a lot of Republicans are thinking too. And it's just not true. There are Republicans out there who think that, but it's a very small subset of the Republican Party. Those Republicans who don't like Donald Trump, if I'm not in the race, guess who they're voting for? They're voting for Donald Trump. And I think that is something that uh, a lot more people need to think about. I've said before, we can't figure out all of the various preferences, but you can figure out relative things. You can know that, for example, the group of people who don't like Donald Trump, but would go to me rather than Joe Biden is, is a much bigger group. Now, obviously, you still need to achieve greater name recognition. Yeah, that is absolutely. hard in any normal campaign cycle. This is anything but normal. We have no idea what November will look like. But leading up to November, how do you stay relevant? How do you maintain the presence that you've been able to have over the course of the last week or so since you announced you've been all over the place? How do you maintain that clip? Um, Keep the media interested, stay engaged with the public so that you can build that uh, recognition so that you can achieve um, enough broad support so that some of your other supporters can come out of the closet and publicly uh, talk about how much they like you? Well, I just have to keep pushing. You know, I'm lucky that I'm 40 years old. I feel like I'm still young relative to the other candidates, you know. I'm not confident that my two general election opponents, if I'm, if I'm fortunate enough to be the nominee of the Libertarian Party, I'm not confident that those two opponents are going to have the energy to do the kinds of things I'm doing. So I'm going to keep pressing, keep doing uh, programs like this. I'm going to keep doing uh, things day after day, getting on the radio, getting on TV, putting out social media posts, and just trying to spread the message so people can understand what I'm about. Right now, people have a very simplistic notion of what I'm about. Right? They, mm-hmm. they don't really know much about Justin Amash because I'm not familiar to them. My name ID is low nationwide. And so the only thing they know about me is I'm a guy who uh, voted to impeach the president. And now for some reason, I want to run against the president. That's, those are the things that they know about me. And they can't figure out why it is that he would want to run against the president when he voted to impeach him. How could this be? My favorite genre of tweet is the Justin Amash tweet when someone discovers that this guy who left the Republican Party voted to impeach the president doesn't agree with them. And they're like, oh, my God, actually, this guy's really dangerous. He's he's like a Koch brothers shill. We cannot say nice things about him. And, once, and it, it is actually the Koch brothers story. It was always the, uh, the, the dog bites man story, which every four years someone says, you know, the Koch brothers are opposed to uh, they uh, they like drug legalization. Can you believe this? They're actually they're really positive on immigration. And people like, you know, find these things and say they're shocked by it. But you're you're uh, in, in Michigan. And of course, these protests that are getting a lot of uh, attention in Michigan are making me wonder what you think about this. Because on, on one hand, there's people out there talking about liberty, they're talking about government overreach. And then I see them and visually, I say, these are the exact people that Justin Amash doesn't really like because he left the party with MAGA hats and, you know, that sort of strain of, of conservatism. But, you know, there's kind of probably some balance in there, I'd imagine. So what do you make of these people in your home state who are, you know, sometimes armed uh, and sometimes storming into buildings. I mean, what do you think of this protest? Well, I can't speak to them as a general group because they come from all sorts of places. And some of them are, you know, doing the right thing and some of them are doing the wrong things. You've seen some people who have come to uh, the Capitol with Nazi symbols or um, Confederate flags or things like that. And and of course, I reject all that stuff and denounce all that stuff. That's not a, okay. I also don't think it's a good idea, even though I'm the strongest supporter of uh, our gun rights and, and strong supporter of the Second Amendment. I don't think it's a good idea to open carry uh, large weapons in the Capitol. I think that that is uh, intimidating to a lot of legislators, whether they intend it or not. That's how it's perceived by people. 
and looks like you're trying to pressure the legislature to do your bidding. And I, I just think that's a really bad idea and a bad look and does not help the cause of people who support open carry. I, you know, I support the idea of protecting people's right to keep and bear arms, including open carry. And I think that this kind of stuff makes people second guess it. And you don't want to have some kind of uh, weird constitutional amendment in Michigan that prohibits it or something like that. These ballot initiatives are pretty easy to, to get done in Michigan. So I think they have to be really careful about that stuff. But look, people are not happy about what the governor has been doing here. The governor has done a lot of things that are really draconian. So everyone understands the need for social distancing and staying home. And there are a lot of measures that most people would say, yeah, this is reasonable. And I think you'd get 80, 90% of the population to say, yeah, those are pretty reasonable measures and we're okay with that. But when you start telling people things like, if your bike is broken, you can't take it to the bicycle repair shop to get fixed because you might get sick. Or they say, she says, you can't have uh, landscaping services because then that will mean more people have to go to the gas station. The, you know, the landscapers have to stop at the gas station and that will increase the spread of COVID-19. Of course, any kind of interaction marginally increases spread of anything. But you have, to, you have to weigh the marginal increase in risk versus the significant detriment to people's lives. People in Michigan were told, you can go to the store, but if that store uh, shouldn't be selling a particular item, the, gover- the government has decided that that's not an okay thing to be selling at that store at this time. We'll just have them tape off the aisles so that you can't get the item. And that makes no sense. And then the governor says, well... There are other stores that specialize in this stuff, and you could go to the other store and get it. If you're worried about spreading coronavirus, why would you send someone to another store? How does that make any sense? So now you just send someone to to two two stores. stores. (laughs) These kinds of things don't make sense. And I, I promise you she is getting advice from people. I know she's hearing from epidemiologists and doctors, but it's not always good advice. Just because someone gave you advice doesn't mean it makes sense, even from a specialist in the field. You have to use common sense, and you have to think about society as a whole. And you were telling people, too, they can't go between two homes that they own. Look, I'm not like super sympathetic to, to all these people who have these you know, two homes that they, <laughs> they want to go to. I don't, I don't think it's the most important thing to be doing right now going between your, you know, between your, yeah, lake, your lake home and your, <laughs> your other home. However, it doesn't make sense as a restriction. It just doesn't make sense. You get in your car, you go from one home to the other. Okay, you had to stop to get gas. Yeah, you've increased the marginal risk somewhat, but it's so small relative to the overall all risk that it's not worth making everyone angry and frustrated. Because when you do that, guess what happens? People stop paying attention to the reasonable guidance that they're getting. They start to think things like, well, if she's going to do this, then we're not even going to socially distance. We're going to just meet up in big groups and we're going to protest and we're going to do other things. And she creates more havoc this way. People don't take it seriously anymore. They don't respect their government. And it's like something uh, Bastiat said, like, if you want to make the laws respected, then you have to make them respectable. And he said it in French, and I'm sure it was more eloquent than that. But <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It, it, that is an important. That is an important point. Well, I, I want to ask you, and I want to respect your time as well because we've been going for a while. But I want to ask you about the foreign policy situation um, because there are a number of things that have been happening recently that I think are almost certainly getting insufficient attention. Um, we we still see increasing tension in the Middle East. Um, we obviously see a lot of tension between the United States. I, I saw a congressperson today, it sounds like, um, calling for uh, us to to take over Chinese companies, perhaps, uh, in an attempt to recoup some of the, the costs associated with this particular pandemic. Who is that congressman? Uh, Matt Getz, I think. It's Matt Getz. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that's. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, of saber rattling that is, in some cases, like explicit. There's things happening in the South China Sea that make me very nervous. But even just the general tone of the criticism that you see emanating from Washington these days directed at um, people who are trading partners, but some would also describe them as adversaries. And I think with good cause uh, in a lot of respects, what is your level of concern about the likelihood of the United States becoming entangled in some 
potential military conflict uh, beyond the entanglements we already have. And do you think that that likelihood is going up as a result of some of the economic dislocation that's taking place, not just in the United States, but around the world? China deserves a lot of condemnation for what it's doing here. There's no doubt about that for how it was involved in this virus situation. And, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of everything with respect to China. And they're being very secretive about it. So I think a lot of that is warranted, of course. But you don't want to get to the point where you end up in some kind of armed conflict. And so you have to be really careful about how you handle a foreign policy crisis like this. So you want to make sure that you get to the bottom of it. But at the end of the day, you don't want to start pointing guns at each other. And the more you talk about um, things in a tense way or um, well, the more you start to uh, threaten the other country, the more likely you get into that situation. So what I think every American understands and our, uh, our businesses certainly understand this now a lot better is that we do have to think about our ability to survive some kind of situation like this. In other words, I think some of our trade, it of course, should always be voluntary, but some of our trade ends up making us more fragile as a country. And we, need, we do need to think about that very carefully. And that's a, that's a decision for individual businesses to make about whether they bring more stuff home or diversify their trading partners. And I, I do think that there is a lot of cause for a lot of companies in the United States to start thinking about how we diversify things so that we are not as reliant on a country like China. But that doesn't mean we should shut off all trade or put all sorts of tariffs in place or try to create a huge economic conflict with a country that may eventually lead to a uh, physical confrontation. I, I, we have to avoid that at all costs and let people through the marketplace now make decisions about how they, how they handle countries like China. And I, I think a lot of American companies are going to make um, different decisions going forward about how they do things. In the preface to the coronavirus, we've had a kind of a populist moment internationally and in this country on both left and right that seems to be on the increase. Um, so looking around to the extent that you do at uh, the domestic politics of other countries, do you see any kind of classical liberal strains? Do you see any other uh, countries where there is in a populist moment people um, – going for in a more Amashian direction? Are there any role models for you out there politically in the world right now or evidence that that there's an audience for this kind of case? Or do you think it's more of a kind of sui generis uh, America remembering its own heritage type of thing? Well, America has a unique heritage in this respect, I think, with respect to classical liberalism. Um, it's it's an old country in terms of classical liberalism, even though it's a young country. So we have a lot of heritage and history there, and that's still largely embedded in people's souls. You know, people really believe in classical liberalism in this country in a way they maybe don't in a lot of other countries. And then you look at populations of other countries, and it's not really reasonable to compare a country with a population of 5 million or 10 million, you know, maybe the size of uh, New York City or something or even smaller than New York City, a whole country, and then compare it to the United States. It's easy for uh, countries with very small populations to do particular experimentation, you know, having a more um, capitalist method of this or a more socialist method of that. They, they can try these little experiments because the, the people are more represented in a sense. They have, it's a smaller unit of government. It would be like, you know, Michigan trying something or New York City trying something or even a smaller state than Michigan. So I, I don't think you can compare uh, a lot of other countries. When you look at other large countries, you're talking about China and India and, uh, you know, Brazil and Indonesia. And some, there are some countries out there that are big, but we obviously are the one that is uh, the most free when you look at countries of that size. And so I don't, I don't think that there are other role models for us. I think we have to look at our own history. And for those who, you know, haven't heard me talk about this before, for, for many Americans, when you look at our history, they say, well, it's a history of um, intolerance and it's a history of uh, all sorts of wrongs. And that is true. That's a part of our history. There was slavery and evil that was still perpetrated at the beginning of our country. 
there was discrimination and segregation on levels that are are not comparable to today. Today, we're, we're there's still discrimination, there's still racism, but it's not the same as say. 50 years ago or 100 years ago, there were, there were some really bad things perpetrated. Women couldn't vote for a long time. So we have gotten better in terms of reforming our institutions. I think we are, in many respects, more of a classical liberal country in terms of our institutions today than we were at the founding. Our constitution has changed very little in over two plus centuries, but the changes that have been made have largely been positive, not all positive. Obviously, you know, there are a few amendments in there related to taxation and other things that a lot of people will quibble with. But a lot of the other changes are positive. The 14th Amendment, for example, put the federal government in a role to protect individual rights in a way that did not exist before. So as much as people talk about states' rights, I hear that all the time. States don't have rights. Individuals have rights. And the job of the government is to secure those rights. And we have a a federal government that is more suited to securing those rights now, thanks to changes we have made to our constitution. And what's missing right now is that we have a government that doesn't respect the system that we've created. So we put together a great constitution. It's a, a fantastic document for how to operate a government. And then we don't follow it. We don't allow the system to actually work in a representative way. And this is why people are so frustrated. When you, when you go back and, and read things like the Federalist Papers, as I said, they didn't even conceive of the kind of liberty that we have today. They didn't even think about true equality of, of all people. Yet they could see the brilliance of the system, our system of federalism and separation of powers. They could see the sensibility of having a bill of rights back then. They could see how the rule of law was important, even if they didn't always follow it. They still talked about it and they could still see that it was important. They just were blind to a lot of their their evils and wrongs. And today, you know, I think we are more open to seeing the, the evils and wrongs. We see them more clearly than we did before. And now we reject the constitution. It's weird. They loved the constitution but couldn't see the evils they were doing. We see the evils, but reject the constitution. It doesn't make any sense. Now we're in the prime position to actually follow the constitution. We see a lot of the wrongs that are going on and we have a great constitution. Let's follow it. And I'm sure 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, we'll realize that there are still things we're doing very wrong. There are still abuses that are happening that don't allow us to achieve true liberty for the people, all the people. And we'll correct those wrongs as time goes on. But we need to follow the Constitution so that we can correct those wrongs. Congressman, you mentioned the wrongs of racism, and I just want to make the pitch here because Camille himself won't do it. You have an opportunity right now to have a diverse ticket that is a Syrian, Palestinian, Jamaican-American ticket. It will go a long way towards righting those wrongs. Camille Foster Mm -hmm. should be Mm -hmm. on your ticket. That sounds like a solid ticket. But but if you listen to some of the old podcasts, you might be saddled with a few of Camille's old comments. He'd have to put his name in the running. I've said I would respect what the delegates at the convention think. And and if Camille wants to put his name in the running, I think he'd make a fantastic agree, And the man won't say it himself. So I'm I'm trying to make the push for him. Undoubtedly true. I'll say I'll say now finally and formally that I've chosen my marriage over my country. Wow. My wife would leave me. Traitor. Were I even to run for office, let alone win, which honestly, like together, uh, just too dangerous. Like, the, the likelihood that <laughs> Too that much happen. liberty. It's just too much. We should, we should do something else to make it more fair for the other guys. <laughs> so there should be someone other than me. Yeah, it would be an unfair yeah, ticket. I think so. It would be unfair for the other I think so. It's yeah. just too much swag. Yeah. It's too much sauce. Yeah. Speaking of Syria, it looked like a Syrian election. It'd be 98%. Yeah. <laughs> Syrian election. No one would believe. How did this happen? Well, we've held you for a while. Um, I'm I'm grateful for you spending a little extra time with us. I want to give you the last word, but I also want to say that I feel like we're friends now. And I, I wanna I wanna respect the office and I we like could be running know, congressman. Too, so. yeah. It's true. It's true. We're spending a lot be. of time together. But I also I feel like I should be calling you Jay. I think that would be better because I, I have this <laughs> like weird like Jay Kanye thing that I feel this vibe. So I'm just going to. I'm cool with that. Yeah. All right. Well, Jay, anything before we go? Well, I want people to check out amoshforamerica.com because as I'm doing this, I need support. I need people out there 
to sign up on the website, to donate. We need to have those contributions so we can help build this campaign. It's important because we're running uh, potentially in the general election against two people who will have hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're going to have to raise money to be able to compete with them. And we can compete with them. This is a, an election that can be won by the Libertarian Party and by the Libertarian ticket. It's an election where you have two other candidates who are extremely weak, uh, not very eloquent, not very popular. And uh, we can come in there and present ideas to the American people and show a real contrast. I, like I said at the beginning, those two candidates are more similar to each other than, they are to, than either one is to me. It's We're true. going to present this as a campaign of us versus those two. You know, if people want to look at the binary choice, there's a binary choice between Justin Amash or do you want the Trump-Biden sort of thing? Those are the choices, really. And uh, I think when people spend time on this campaign, when they really dig into it and think about the ideas being talked about, they're going to come over to our campaign and, and they're going to show support. And, um, and so I, I, I want to say to the Libertarian Party, I'm going to work to earn your trust and respect over, over the next few weeks and in the months to come. And, and I'm committed to helping build that party because I think that it's important that we have a strong competitor. You know, we're going to work to win this race. But it's important that we have a strong competitor for years to come. It cannot continue down the path of Republicans and Democrats are in charge of everything. They don't uh, respect our Constitution. They don't respect our rights. And then only 55% of the people vote in the presidential election and 45% of the people don't even participate because they're just not that interested in these two parties. We have to change that and we have to build up a strong party to compete with them. And the Libertarian Party can be that party. Congressman Justin Abal. Strong pitch. Thank you very much, Thank sir. You, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.